the apocalypse, the last judgment, the last things, are matters that cause a lot of debate amongst Christians and perhaps lead many others to think Christianity is crazy as well. But William Blake, as is often the case, can make sense of the things that Christians, the church, remembers around the time of Advent in particular, in the lead up to Christmas. And so I wanted to offer a few thoughts, which are very indebted, on the one hand to Kathleen Rain, the great scholar of William Blake, but also to Dante, and my reading of how Dante understands these tremendous impacts upon human life, the infernal, the purgatorial, the paradiso, of course, as he puts it, but they're deeply related to the last things, the notion of a last judgment. Is the world going to be rent asunder with the good sense to one place, the bad to another? Or is there something a lot more immediate, valuable and convincing going on? Well, I think there is, and Blake teases it out. It starts, as ever with Blake, that how you understand these spiritual, religious things, these matters of cosmic significance rather than so much personal, depends deeply upon your imagination. Its vision, what we see, is seen by the imaginative eye of everyone according to the situation he holds Blake writes. So what people tend to say about the Lord's judgment, whether it feels punishing, terrifying, whereas Blake knows that this imaginative lens through which we see things can develop, should develop, he fosters its development. And so, to use the well-known analogy, whilst one person might see the sun as like a golden guinea a disc hanging in the sky. Another person will see its glorious light and perceive holy, holy, holy being sung amidst the radiance. This difference of understanding the last judgment actually plays out in the New Testament itself, in the life of St. Paul, for example, whereas early on he sees the last judgment as a literal historical event that people are waiting for will be gathered up in the clouds as he puts it in 1 Thessalonians. By the end, he's realising much more that it's an interior experience, something that's happening now, something that Christians can enter into during their earthly lives, carrying it beyond that. And so he will say things like, I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Christ has returned within him. And I think that trying to tease these matters out in that way, realising there's a progress from a rather externalised, literalised understanding of the Last Judgment to one that understands its interior significance, maybe is an improvement on the somewhat hodgepodge approach you get from the church, say, in the Advent season, which in one moment will sing, Lo, he comes on clouds descending, but another moment will take you into the darkness as if it's something very present now. So, to cut to the chase, for Blake, the apocalypse, the last judgment, wasn't a future event to sit around and wait for, or perhaps prepare for in 
certain trepidation. It's not the end of history. It's not a rapture when the good will be taken away and the evil will be left in their torment. It's a present, constant, spiritual reality. It's a continual movement from old to new, from the old creation to the new creation, that's born in every moment for those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, which Blake, along with Jesus, wanted us to have. So it's an invitation, the Last Judgment, to know things very differently and know things as dynamic and happening, to see things truly, not as historians would have it, a kind of ticking along with one event after another in a linear, random, somewhat haphazard at least, process, but as an emergence and unfolding that whilst at one level seems chaotic and disordered, at another level, the personal level, the interior level, not just of the individual, but even of groups and civilizations, can perceive that something is unfolding in the events of everyday life. It's a bit like seeing the difference between time as chronos, the clock ticking, and as kairos, these eruptions of significance, which when paid attention to, when aligned with or orientated around, can change everything, can change your life by paying attention to the now, not being obsessed with the future. Blake called these Kairos experiences stupendous vision or images of wonder and becoming attuned to them is very connected to how he understands the Last Judgment. He sees history, if you like, as a mirror of the eternal, much like Plato said that time is the moving image of eternity. And this can be understood by the imagination, by who we're becoming inside, changing how we see the world to surround us outside, because actually, of course, we see the interiority of the world outside as well. Blake sees it as a kind of opening, an awakening, a cleansing of the doors of perception, to be aware of the spirit in what he calls a new age. So the apocalypse, or last judgment, um, is something that everyone and even all civilizations will experience, Blake said, because it's part of this divine unfolding. It can't be avoided, as the more traditional notion has it as well, but it's something that can be attended to now and as an invitation, not as a threat. Blake says, whenever any individual rejects error and embraces truth, a last judgment passes upon that individual. It's a key phrase that Kathleen Rain points out. Whenever any individual rejects error and embraces truth, a last judgment passes upon that individual. The embrace of truth. In what way? What is this awakening? Well, consider his second image of the last judgment, um, which he made in about 1808, and have a look at some of the details as well as the overall sense of it. You can see it as a picture of a tremendous flow. There's the downward movement on the right-hand side, the turning around at the bottom, and then the upward movement on the left, as if life is a great circle, 
proceeding from the divine radiance at the top, descending through various stages and moments, and then having reached a kind of nadir or emptiness, not being able to stay there, not being left there, but being drawn, even in the darkness, back up towards the light. This is a, a key Blakeian theme, that it's often in the darkness that the subtlety of the light is seen more clearly, because in the bright light of day we tend not to notice it. But there's also lots of details in the image that are illuminating as well. Look at the cave at the bottom. This is where Satan, the selfhood, as Blake calls that state, is shown. It's very much akin to Plato's cave, the state of being when people are imprisoned, they can't move, they see shadows dancing on the wall and presume that's the whole of reality. And because of that presumption, are kept in that state, apart from anything else. But the cave can be escaped, and you see that beginning to happen by the two images of the lovers on either side of the cave at the bottom of the image. On the dark side, the lovers are fighting one another, they're in dispute, they're divided, as Blake would say. Whereas on the light side, they're embracing, they've realised their unity, their love has drawn them together. And that experience of falling in love, of being in love, of wanting to have and hold and be had and held by someone else is the beginnings of the awakening of returning to the divine radiance. Falling in love is a moment of last judgment when it's a rejection of error and embrace of truth, Blake would say. And then moving up the image, look at the comparison he makes between the attitudes towards the Bible, a great book, sources of inspiration, sources of spiritual eruption, would be another way of putting it. And on the dark side, people are attacking the book, they're doubting it, they're sceptical, they even appear to be ripping it up, they're refusing the inspiration that can speak to them from without their minds, the imagination that can connect with things like the Bible. Whereas on the left, there is an attitude of reverence, a very different kind of organ of perception, one that is humble in the sense of being receptive to, open to, wanting to engage with. That is part of the return to the light. And of course, there can be both these moments in any one individual's life. In some way, doubt is part of this process, Blake is saying, not something simply to be condemned and rejected, as the traditional view of the Last Judgment might suggest, because doubt is the way that we can enter into our limits, but also grapple with things ourselves, and so make them ourselves. And so it's after doubt comes the moment of reverence. That would be the way to put it, I think, in this depiction. And then at the top is the figure of Jesus on the throne. Maybe it's the Heavenly Father too, then becoming one, of course. And is depicted at the heart of the divine radiance. Reigning, you might say, by presence alone. The kind of power that draws rather than the kind of power that condemns. And it's the unmoved mover as well that which causes all things to move simply by their longing to return. 
to that which is their source, their wellspring, the centre of a flow of life that reaches across the cosmos, and which hell and the fall is a part. That's an aspect of the dynamism of God in the mystery of these things. As Blake puts it, around the throne, heaven is opened and the nature of eternal things displayed, all springing from the divine humanity, all beams from him, as he himself has said, all dwells in him. He is the bread and the wine, he is the water of life. And you see the font, the altar with the Eucharist on it, the cross, and even the ark of the covenant around this radiating presence, because they're all symbols of opening Christ having rent the veil. And they can be ever present to us. The symbols here in the picture are designed to prompt our awareness of this opening, this renting of the veil in everyday life. Everything is sacramental in Blake's imagination. Their presence in churches is but a prompt. And maybe that's another facet of this understanding that Blake would say the churches get wrong, as if you must come to one particular place to receive these things, rather than receiving these things everywhere. And in fact, in particular, in our humanity itself, Blake remarks in another point, man is the ark of God. Man is the ark of God. We're the divine presence most keenly experienced and felt within ourselves, and if we can have the eyes to see in those around us as well. All human beings are at the centre of this revelation, which is what the person of Jesus tells us as well, the meeting point between the human and the divine, telling us that the human can be divine if we can see it aright. So the last judgment in a way then is the end of illusion, it's the end of ignorance, it's seeing clearly the doors of perception cleanse so that everything is known as it is infinite. That is what the apocalypse, which of course in the Greek means unveiling, means to Blake, known now in every moment, in every person, in every state. And so the figures around the image are not so much individuals as states of mind into which individuals can find themselves either as a fall or as an, an elevation. Um, if you like, when you look at the image from afar, it has a, a unity, as if all of humanity is one. And so that's the cosmic perception of the Last Judgment. But when seen closer up, the particularities, the minute particulars of this great dance, this swirl, are seen as moments in individual lives. All these states exist in the one humanity, hence the picture is a picture of humanity from the inside, a kind of interior representation of the psychology of the collective as much as the individual. All that can happen to man in his pilgrimage of 70 years, as Blake puts it. It includes the celestial, it includes the terrestrial, it includes the infernal. We're mental travellers engaged in a mental fight. We're fighting wars of love, carrying wounds of love, moving from desperation to delight, Blake says. Living in a process, you might say, rather than a series of unconnected events. And Blake invites us to distinguish, therefore, states from individuals in those states, as he puts it. States change, but individual identities never change, nor cease, as he puts it in another place, 
it will be seen that I do not consider either the just or the wicked to be in a supreme state. Neither the just nor the wicked in a supreme state, but to be every one of them states of sleep, which the soul may fall into in its deadly dreams of good and evil, when it leaves paradise following the serpent. This is Blake's other critique of the notion of the last judgment coming through, which is when it's seen as a moral event, an eruption of that which divides in the form of good and evil, in the form of the just and the wicked. And Blake knows that this is to reduce the gospel into what he calls the wastes of the moral law. It's a bit like reading Jesus's parable, say, of the wheat and the tares, as if the idea is to rip out the tares and preserve the wheat. But in the parable, Jesus says, be careful, you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. And maybe even that which looks like a tear will turn out to be wheat, because in God's grace, this great cosmic movement, maybe they're part of one another, in fact, and one will return to the other. The darkness will reveal the light, even as the darkness differentiates and helps us understand the light more fully. It's, I think, akin to a more Eastern notion within the Christian world, where the relationship between humanity and God is not seen as one of infinite divide, as if there's a great cosmic chasm that must be bridged somehow by the person of Jesus, but rather sees the divine and the human interfused, and that presence of Christ is the interfusion. And so the salvation which is offered in the gospel is not one of transaction that I can accept the price that's been paid to rid me of the evil and return me to the good, but rather it's one of theosis or divinization. It's the bringing out of that which is most real, most true, most good, most beautiful, and so returning to the divine source from whence we came. Or it can be compared, I think, very well to the Buddhist wheel of life in a slightly different sense that the wheel of life depicts the different states of humanity from the heavenly states to the infernal states to the earthly states but sees that as part of the great turning and that each state has its particularity its particular moment and particularly the earthly states are the one where the greatest change can take place. Blake is offering us his image of the wheel of life to foster that sense of moment-by-moment moment possibility and change, which is called the Last Judgment. But notice too, it takes evil entirely seriously, like Dante does. You have to know the infernal states, not just to know of the resilience and the priority of the heavenly states, but to know that God says yes to all states, so even here on earth, in mixed states of mind, when we're moving from one to the other, we can be assured that the divine presence can be known through the imagination. Blake says that the state called Satan can't be redeemed because that state is the rejection of redemption. But all individuals who find themselves in that state at one time or another can be redeemed. It's a bit like saying hell is empty for Blake or, as Dante has it as he travelled through hell up Mount Purgatory into the paradise. He realised that that was the direction of travel of all things, at least as I've interpreted it in my writings. 
But there is a supreme state which is knowing our divine humanity, is knowing the imagination, and that frees us not from all states but within all states because we're able then to keep moving with the flow even in the darkness. That is the terrible thing that Dante sees in the inferno that Blake calls eternal death when people believe they're frozen and stuck and there is no hope and of course you know the church when it preaches a historic last judgment where people will be divided can contribute to that it's the antithesis of the gospel Blake would say which can know that these dark states are passed through as much as the light but that the passing can be facilitated by the movement of the divine spirit Jesus the imagination therefore as Blake puts it, is the saviour, the way we know the presence of Christ, releasing and keeping the flow of life in motion. The imagination is not a state, Blake says, it is the human existence itself. And so knowing the truth of our lives is not to take us out of life, but is to enable us to go through life, in fact, opposing the selfhood or the satanic state which identifies the identifies with the current state and so freezes life which you know leads to all manner of fear and terror and as if either i'm going to be condemned or the other's going to be condemned that said it can feel as if all is lost as blake puts it many doubted and despaired and imputed sin and righteousness to individuals and not to states but he affirms satan is the state of death and not a human existence a world where man is by nature the enemy of man because the evil is created into a state that man may be delivered time after time evermore. There's always a delivery, even when there's the seeming presence of being fixed in a state. Learn therefore, O sisters, Blake continues, to distinguish the eternal human that walks about among the stones of fire in bliss and woe alternate from those states or worlds in which the spirit travels. That is the only means to forgiveness of enemies. Forgiveness being this other key potential we have because it keeps things in motion, in flow. It's the truth that humanity is not inherently evil, but rather knows that the heavens are open, as Blake depicts in his image, that transhumanizing is our destiny, not through technological means, of course, but through the realisation of who we truly are in the dynamics of life, in the processes of darkness and light, in the darkness of the winter, the Advent season, the light of God is beginning to shine, and the darkness, in fact, can help us see it. So Blake's last judgment, his apocalypse, the final things, is not a tale of terror, it's not a tale of something to wait on that's going to come. It's not an end of history or a strange descent on literal clouds. Rather, it's a moment of joy that can be known in every moment, a rejection of error and an embrace of truth. It's a revelation that we're in different states for sure, but those states are continually changing and part of the divine return. It's an awareness that interiority or the imagination can be entered into and so the depth and truth of things, cosmic processes as well as individual lives can be understood. And it's the awakening that leads back to the divine, the wellspring, the source, from whence we came, out of which we flow, which we can feel distant and far from, as if shut in a cave, 
but actually is continually calling us, continually drawing us, lifting us, and so embracing us as does what is good, beautiful and true.